Good morning. Y'all sang beautifully this morning. I, I'm just going to say, maybe I can get a request in for that last song again next week. Uh, but I, what I want y'all to notice is Brandon every week is connecting the themes of the songs in, in the worship to the themes in the text. Um, this morning, we're going to be starting in the book of Genesis. We're calling the this this series the, the Gospel of Genesis. And the Gospel of Genesis, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be following the story of the snake crusher. And this morning, the sermon is titled Foundations. And I just want to prepare you. We're not doing foundations every week. But this morning, we're doing a lot of background. So just, it's a lot of background. <laughs> I recognize that. But we're only going to do it once. So this morning will be an introduction to the book of Genesis, setting the, the groundwork for the study as a whole, looking at the theme of the book, understanding the audience of the book. Um, we're, and we're going to talk about why it's necessary for us as believers to read the book literally as a historical narrative. The snake crusher points to the promise of Jesus in Genesis 3.15. This is what some theologians call the proto-evangelium. Protos, it's Greek. It's, this, is, this is something we've noticed for a long time. Proto is first. Evangelion is gospel. Genesis is the first picture of the gospel. It's the first picture of the good news of a promised child. And some of you are going to be like, wait, 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 wait. I really, like Genesis is my book. Like I, I, know, I know some Genesis. And the theme is about, uh, is about the, the genealogies. Nailed it. The genealogies are leading us to Christ. And I'm going to be making this the, the case throughout the whole of our study in this book that the book is centered around the, the central promise that God makes with man. And that's this promised child, and that each covenant is a further unveiling of what this promised child would do. For instance, the, the creation story is, yes, revealing things about creation, revealing things about God, but it's building to Genesis 3. It's building to the fall. And it's building to that moment when, when God gives us this promise of this one who's going to come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, the serpent's going to strike his heel, but the wound is not going to be fatal. And this child, this man, this Jesus Christ will crush the head of the enemy once and for all. This word Genesis, it means beginning. In Genesis, God reveals himself as the creator and ruler and covenant keeper. So real quick, let's look at who our author is. Our author is Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. We call that the Pentateuch. And why would the background about the author be relevant? Because I'm always going to tell you, yes, we can, get, we can get meaning without context, but context 
often drives meaning and understanding. So who's the first audience? The audience is Israel in the wilderness. Let's think about this. Why, why would this... When, when we're thinking about who this, this audience would have been to first hear this beautiful revelation of God who creates who takes care of his creation, who loves his creation, who's both near to them and reigning above all. Why would it be, why would the, the, the Israelites want to know this? If you'll remember, the Israelites who were in the wilderness, they've, they're recently released from captivity in Egypt. Now their oral law, told, or oral law, that's not right, their oral traditions told them things about Elohim God, but for 430 years, they had been enslaved and they had been indoctrinated into the culture and the gods of the Egyptians. And you're like, oh, that seems like a leap. Well, let's think back to the whole golden calf issue. Like that that shows proof that they were connected to these gods in a way. The Egyptians, they had gods for everything. They had gods for their creation story and its multiple gods. They had gods for fertility. They had gods for wealth. They had gods for war. They had gods for the moon. They had gods for the stars. They had gods for the sun. They they had gods for every aspect of life. The Israelites' escape from Egypt, if you'll remember, was not a war between men. It was... Yahweh God's utter decimation of the gods of the Egyptians. The Israelites are following this this God that they don't know much about. Honestly, he's pretty much an unknown God to them into a wilderness. They're following him into an unknown place and into an unknown land that he's promised to them. And think about how uh, like, just appreciate what they might be feeling. So, what do they know about this God? Well, this God dominated Egypt, and in, by day, when they look up, he's a pillar of a cloud as they follow, and at night, what do they see? A flaming torch, a pillar of fire. What does that do to you internally? Like, yeah, the God we follow, he's really powerful, but we don't know much about him. It's got to invoke terror to a level, to a degree. And think about this. Like, we, we talk about the law, like, oh, the, 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 the laws are so um, restrictive. Or they're, they're uh, empowering because they didn't know what made this God happy. They didn't know what made this God sad. They did not know what made this God mad, but they knew that this God could wipe them off the face of the earth with a snap of his fingers. At Mount Sinai, God envelops the entire mountain in smoke. God comes down in fire. He tells them, don't touch the edge or you will die. These are the scenes that they have of God. Who is this God? The book of Genesis begins revealing who this God is. That he's loving. That he's creator. That he has a covenant faithfulness. Y'all remember that word back in the book of uh, Ruth? 
this Hesed, this Hesed love and covenant keeper. We see this developing through the book of Genesis. So now let's move on to, like, that's, that's why we need to know some of the background. Like, doesn't that drive, like, some understanding? So the approach we're going to take to this text, it's a literal approach. The approach we're going to be reading Genesis is that God has inspired the author, and, and everything Genesis speaks to, we will... Uh, we will consider as inspired by God without error. And the things that he speaks to, we're going to consider authoritative on every subject addressed in the book, which includes, this is, this is the catch for a lot of people, origin of where we come from. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof, for, creation, uh, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. So as we dive in, the thing you need to decide before we get started in Genesis 1-1 is whether or not you'll take God at his word. So let's pray, and then we're going to get right into it. God, I'm very excited to take this journey as we see your gospel unveiled in the book of Genesis. Lord, I pray that by faith we would accept your word to be inerrant. Now there is proof, but I pray that we would walk in faith. I pray that you would open our eyes and places where, where we see the world seeping into our faith, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes and that we would be quick to repent and stand, stand firmly on your truth. Lord, help us now in Jesus' name, amen. So what is true? God, he's the creator of everything in the heavens and on earth. Seems like a simple one, but we're doing Genesis 1, 1 and 2, so not going far this morning. So what do we do that, with that? We submit to our creator and follow him by faith. Let's read our text. This is one most of us probably know by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So, starting in 1-1, we're gonna, I believe that 1-1 is the forward to the the, to the creation story. It's preamble, if you will. Genesis 1-1 is a synopsis of the entire creation narrative. I don't believe that, that God is saying he created the heavens and earth, then created the heavens and earth. I think it's making a statement about who this God is. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and then he's going to go in and tell us exactly what he did. And um, God, he, he's, he's answering in the first line where everything comes from and how everything, oops, my bad, how everything began to exist. It's because he created it. Many early Greek philosophers, I go to them because I'm thinking about the first century when, when Jesus walked, they believed in 
like a primeval matter and that the gods would use this in their creation. You'll, you'll find this or something like this in, in uh, Plato's, uh, Plato's Republic or in Aristotle's Metaphysics. A view like this would have been predominant in the, the first century. Now, some early Christians who ended up becoming cults, they made similar claims. They were trying to fit Remember, it wasn't just the Jews who became Christians. It was, uh, it was Greeks also. It was Romans. And they tried to fit their religion uh, in, of the world into their Christianity. They tried to fit their worldview into Christianity. They tried to, to, to make these things come together. The, and we ended up with a group called the Gnostics. Gnostic is a Greek word for knowledge. They were seeking a deeper knowledge other than what was plainly made known in the scriptures. This group was heretical, and we believe that um, the book of 1 Corinthians is addressing them. He keeps making, he keeps, Paul mocks knowledge all the way through 1 Corinthians, but he's mocking their secret knowledge. That's why we believe that's what that's about. And the book of 1 John is also, we believe, combating these Gnostics. These, uh, these people were heretics and they led people away from the scriptures. And as the view developed, they led people away from Jesus straight to hell because they were new, using names like the Father and the Son and Jesus. But what they were doing is they, they were changing the meanings. They had the same vocabulary but a different definition. So what does that look like for us today? When Christians try to marry different prevailing world views that contrast with the plain reading of the Bible, I think the main place we see it play out is in the area of science, trying to marry Christianity to a Darwinism or to an evolutionary theory. It, I think many of us know that Charles Darwin, he wrote Origin of Species, but I think we think it happened much further in the past than it actually did. He wrote it in 1859, which is relatively close to where we are historically. The idea is not that old. Now, it did pre-exist him, but he's the one who really popularized these ideas of evolutionary theory and natural selection. And the basic idea is that all living organisms come from the same mom and dad if you follow it back far enough. But this is what I want you to hear this morning, that science and Scripture harmonize. It's not science versus Scripture. Science and Scripture are not at odds with one another. All truth is God's truth. Amen? Amen. And a true science will fit within a biblical worldview of order and origin. Scientific theory and scripture are often incompatible. Now, did I say science and scripture are incompatible? Scientific theory and scripture are often incompatible. What's the difference between a scientific fact and a scientific theory? The application of the scientific method. For something to become uh, a scientific fact or accepted science, it must go through that method. And you'll remember from grade school, how does it go? You have to have a hypothesis 
then you test it, and then you record your data, and then you repeat it. The repetition is the important part. You have to have the same data come through. It must be repeatable. Much of what passes for science today is merely philosophy. They're guessing on how everything started or didn't start. And then, based on their guesses, they are curating inf information that would fit that narrative. And I want you to understand what you're looking at in most science books is curated information that matches a, a, a pre-assumed narrative. For instance, it's accepted science that the world is billions of years old. That just simply can't be science. You know why? You can't test it. You can't reproduce that. That's not a hypothesis that you can verify. Now, could it be? Certainly. But you can't accept it as science. The basis assumption is so that they would get away from a God, from a creator God. And they want to say that everything started billions of years ago, and we all eventually grew out of this just single-celled organism, and after being lucky enough, long enough, to be on this planet, the entire universe, um, like, think about this. Of all the, all the planets in the universe there's only one that we can find that's conducive to life. Now, every once in a while they go, there's one we think might be. But there's only one that we know is conducive to life. And for them to be right, this amoeba, the single cell organism, has to have all the right conditions on the only right planet and come into being. And then what do we know about reproduction? That single-cell organism on this vast earth would have to find another single-cell organism that just happened to pop up at the same time that was compatible reproductively with the other one. Not talking about how either one of those things came into being, but in their lifetime, they would have to find each other and reproduce. That takes a lot of faith to get there. I don't, I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution. That's not science. The, the, the answer of time and luck, that's not science. That's not something to build a worldview around. Christians who desire to be in the cool club will capitulate on these prevailing worldviews. Christians, your worldview will not put you at odds with the truth of verified science. I just want to... Like, you can be comfortable in that. It's not science versus scriptures. The worldview will put you at odds with, a Christian worldview will put you at odds with scientific theory and other worldly theories that are trying to come up with any other answer for creation other than God. Let's think about why. Because if there is a God, a God who reigns, then they will have to submit their lives to him. And they don't want to submit to a God who reigns because then they would have to submit to his ethics. They would have to submit to his values on life. They would have to submit to God's design for marriage, God's design on sexuality, God's design for worship. They don't want that God. 
and they're looking for any other thing to put their faith in. Also, one more point to accept evolution, you have to accept just massive giant leaps in logic for the beginning of all things. So one of the explanations to the world that is often given is this idea of infinite regression. Like, where did the world come from? Uh, just, you know, there's a lot of particles for a long time. Just, just happened. But where did those things come from? The, their answer is infinite regression. Well, that still doesn't answer the question of where did it all begin? Another view, um, it's common, and honestly, it's the cosmological view that we hold, just we know where it comes from. It's the Big Bang. Out of nothing, everything came to be. Well, for them who are atheists, it's like, but how? Where did it come from? What was the spark? We, we, I mean, we're all kids. We played with the dominoes, right? We'd stack them up. Did the dominoes just stack themselves? No. We, we have enough information to also know that those dominoes didn't just fall without something pressing on them. They needed a first cause. These worldviews give no first cause. There has to be a, an, an unmoved mover, as the Greeks would say, or a first cause. God opens this love letter to humanity and explains himself to be this first cause. He explains himself to be this unmoved mover. He is the creator of the heavens and earth, and he created matter, and he created energy. And the evidence that God has, has put in creation, that there is, in fact, a creator, it will demand a verdict on what you believe about this God. Romans 1.20 says this, uh, they are without excuse because God is clearly revealing himself in creation. God has given us arithmetic, science, philosophy, logic. He's given us laws of nature, all which point to an order, a mind, a cause. And if you die without accepting this cause, without accepting this God, you are without excuse and you will have to pay the full debt of your sin. But thanks be to God that he sent his son, that he came to us and allowed us to have a way to heaven. Now let's look at the need for a literal approach to reading Genesis. That's the, that's the approach we're going to take. And marrying Darwinism to your Christianity, this would be taking a non-literal approach to Christianity. And it will open the door to moral decay in your life, in your family, and in your church. Why do I say this? Because in the American church, we've seen the effects of it for over 100 years. And it's created major battles within our Southern Baptist Convention that you can track and follow. And it all comes down to that same question in the garden. Did God really say don't eat from this tree? Did God really mean that he created the world the way he said he did? Did God really say it that way? One might say, well, Genesis 1 is poetry. And poetry is meant to be read figuratively. And I will say, this might make you uncomfortable, Genesis 1 is 100% poetry. That's the genre that it's written in. But can something be poetic and true? 
When I write my, if I were to write my wife a poem and it says, Jordan, I love you, do you think I want her to take that figuratively or want it to be something she takes as true? True. I'm also aware of those passages that some people who hold to old earth creation would use like 2 Peter 3, 8. A day to God is like a thousand years. The Bible says so. That's great. Um, but you are ripping that passage out of context. Peter is writing that explaining why God will tarry in coming in the last days. He's not talking anything about creation. He's talking everything to do with last days. You're proof texting your creation story. And here's the deal. A proof text is a pretext for taking a, uh, the word of God out of context. Amen? Also, I'm aware of the use of the word age in Daniel. And honestly, this is compelling to me. Sometimes, sometimes it's a really strong argument to me that the word that is translated accurately about age in Daniel is also the same word used in Genesis 1 about day. So they'll say that those days are to be translated as age. However, that does not answer why every day is ended with the going down and coming up of the sun. There's a time demarcation on every day, unless you want to say that for those ages, the sun neither went down or came up. Or you have to say, that's just the figurative, the sun's coming down and going up. But you have to answer these questions if that's a position you want to hold. I will say, I believe you can be a Christian and not hold to a literal understanding of creation. I mean, I think for most of my Christianity, that's where I was. I, you can be a Christian and hold that. Um, and it's likely because you've been ingrained with such secular philosophy that you have so many predispositions towards an old earth that are based on Darwinian evolution that even though you would not hold to that by name, you're trying to make sense of your ingrained worldview like the Gnostics with the God of the Scriptures. So let's take a second and let's try to understand our predispositions so we can avoid falling into the same theological and moral dangers that you can look in history and see. When reading the Bible, it's helpful to understand your history, your context, and unraveling the possible unbiblical positions that you've been inoculated to and you're predisposed to, just like we did a second ago with understanding Israel coming out of Egypt how they're predisposed to idolatry. Like, it's okay that we do that. That's called exegesis. We're not just to exegete the text. We're to exegete ourselves and, and put, our, put our worldview underneath the microscope of the text. So a little history to help us understand how we got here. In the early 1900s, this non-literal understanding of reading the Bible entered the Southern Baptist seminaries. It entered other places before this, but just we're a Southern Baptist, so that's what we're talking about. By the name of a guy called, his name was Dr. Um, Crawford Toy. He began teaching these ideas. Funny, he was also engaged to marry uh, the lady that we just spent December celebrating, Lottie Moon. And she realized that he had fallen in, 
not necessarily his creation worldviews, but how he was approaching the text as not literal, and she dumped his rear end and moved to China. So that's just fun information for you. Made some history. The, 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 the view I've been calling a non-literal or a figurative approach to reading the Bible is properly called German theological liberalism. And it does not understand God to be the author of the Bible, maybe inspired some of it, that the Bible is not reliable about the historical facts that it speaks to, but it is helpful experientially in spiritual matters concerning God. And I want you to understand that I hate this theology more than anything else. It is more of a damnable theology than health and wealth, than someone who would reject the, the uh, deity of Christ or anything else. You know why? Because this worldview, it's, it's subtle. It compromises everything. Also, it leads you to all these other places. Generally, those who hold to, to this view believe that the Bible reveals things about God, but most of it is myth, including creation. This view in regards to creation often pushes ideas like gap theory, theistic evolution, that means like a God who set everything in motion and just kind of let it go, or an old earth view that really tries to marry Genesis 1 with Darwinian evolution. Dr. Toy's view quickly gained prominence moving to seminaries and to pulpits. Did you know all the way until the 1980s, the rest of uh, Christ American Christianity considered Southern Baptists to be liberals, theological liberals? It is because of German theological liberalism. By the 1920s, there was a major controversy. But what it showed is that most Southern Baptists held to a literal understanding of the Bible. Many literalist theologians, they began fighting back, writing and explaining in state papers the moral decay that would come from accepting these premises of not taking a, a literal approach to the scriptures and using things like evolution to explain creation, how it would lead to moral decay within the churches and within the institutions. In the 20s, these theologians were screaming from the housetops that this is incompatible with, with God, with the Bible. Did you know that most of our Ivy League schools were founded as seminaries? Princeton was Presbyterian. One of my favorite theologians was B.B. Weirfield. He was an old earth creationist who held to the inerrancy of Scripture um, in the late 1800s. He let it in. Scripture, uh, or Princeton is not recognizable as Christian now. Harvard was a congregational, uh, congregationalist seminary. Duke was a Baptist seminary. And we can go on and on and on. And these seminaries, a hundred years later, because they opened their doors to German theological liberalism and non-literal approach to the text and evolution are not recognizable as Christian organizations today. 
many originally Baptist and Methodist and Anglican and Lutheran and Presbyterian churches and organizations are, are unrecognizable as well. But within it all, God has always preserved a remnant. So I don't want you to hear the, a sweeping denial of all these things. But these, I'm going to call it, these cults of Christianity who operate under names that we would accept openly advocate now for abortion. They assume evolution. They advocate for homosexual marriage to be recognized by the state and in the church. They are pro-LGBTQ and they recognize all sorts of sexual dysphoria as natural. They reject God's order, God's ethics in the home and in the church. And they would stand under the Christian banner while not recognizing Jesus as the only way to heaven. This thing I'm talking about seems subtle, but how it plays out is horrible. Those pastors' warning of the spiritual decay and not taking a literal view weren't wrong. A few years earlier in the 1880s, because we're just talking about 1920, a few years earlier in the 1880s, Spurgeon, we, we might want to call him the Baptist Pope, others call him the Prince of Preachers, he was dealing with this same battle in England in the Baptist denomination as this German theological liberalism and evolution took over. Spurgeon lost the battle. Spurgeon lost the battle in churches that he planted under pastors he rose up. The denomination eventually moved liberal in his lifetime. Let me say this, in his lifetime. Moved liberal, and the, eventually with the denial of the infallibility of Scripture, the denial of the necessity and substitutionary nature of Jesus Christ's atonement, the denial of the existence of, of an eternal hell, and the, the, the affirmation of universalism. What seemed to be a small issue of interpretation became the, the source of spiritual rot in that country. You, we sit here and we talk about these churches and we talk about these schools. How did we get here? I'm telling you, this is how we got there. You can trace it. Uh, we, in, we invited a, a, a famous... New Testament scholar from East Texas Baptist University. East Texas Baptist University. And from the pulpit, in the, the three times that he preached at the church, after time one, I was screaming from the housetops. He advocated these ideas and subtly cut the legs out of the authority of Scripture every time. The leader of the BGCT in the 2000s, he wrote a paper entitled The Errancy of Inerrancy. These are battles we're still walking in. And these schools that we're sending our kids and our grandkids to that say Baptist on the side of them, they are openly indoctrinating your students in this. This is not a battle from yesteryear. It's a battle today.
I say all this, and sorry, I skipped a lot walking through the history of it. I want you to be aware of this conversation, and I want you to be aware of these terms and these pressures that have been weighing heavy on the church for over a century and have very likely affected one way or the other how you understand creation and the different pressures it's putting on our churches. Other cultural pressures on why you might lean towards an evolutionary theory will be in areas of your, not just spiritual development, but your educational development. You'll remember with the Scopes trial in 1925, the Supreme Court allowed evolution to be taught in our schools as an acceptable view of the origin of life. And now that view is the accepted view of order and creation, is it not? In every major textbook and on every college campus. This idea of evolution, how it plays out culturally. Y'all will remember the, the name Margaret Sanger. She, she brought forth um, birth control and how she desensitized the population to a child in a womb is instead of using the word baby, applied the same mechanism of evolution from embryo to fetus. Do you know what both of those words mean in Latin? Baby. That was not an accepted view. Abortion was not. But over time and through desensitization, that's how we get there. Evolution has been the argument for Sanger and eugenics, as well as Hitler. Hitler was using, Hitler lived in Germany, Germany for years, since the Reformation was the star on the hill for theology. German theological liberalism in the mid-1800s paved the way for this with the acceptance of evolution. And this evolutionary argument was the argument he made for the eugenics of the Jews. These things play out in real ways, church. We've seen them play out for a hundred years in America. We are products of our culture that we've grown up in. And we're predisposed to views. And we have to be sure that we're not marrying our Christianity to these worldly views. And I want you to understand the history and part of evolutionary theory in America and in our theology and in our courts and in our education system because I don't want these non-biblical philosophies of man to dictate, to dictate the reading of Scripture. And I also want you to hear this. I believe that you can hold an old earth view of creation, but if you hold that, you have to walk closely to an inerrant view of Scripture. Because if not in the case of our theological institutions and churches, when they didn't, they no longer represented Christianity. You can do it. I believe you can do it faithfully, but you need to do it hearing this warning of, the, of what theology you need to walk very, very closely to. And also, this, this issue of inerrancy of Scripture, 
is why I keep pushing to the church the acceptance of the Baptist faith and message because it makes clear what we believe about Scripture. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are, are, are visible. We, by faith, are going to take Genesis' account as literal, as historical events. I know this was a lot of warnings about danger, and I spent a lot of time showing moral decay in the churches and these evolutionary ideas and German theological liberalism, how it gained problems, like all this kind of stuff. But this title this morning is Foundations, and we're laying the foundation about what we're going to believe about Genesis 1 and 2, because by the lens you read Genesis 1 and 2 by will, will be what dictates how you read the rest of the scriptures. And did God really say X or Y concerning ethics, concerning morals, concerning himself? Will you take God at his word? Or are you going to say, in your heart, can this God be trusted? Can this word of God be trusted? The last thing I want to show you very quickly, going back to the text, I want to show you creation out of chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word here for God is Elohim, and I just learned this this week. My mind was blown. Elohim is a plural word for God. So why don't we translate it God's? Well, because the Greek or the Hebrew does very specific things. You you translate. You can have a plural word and it not be plural because of the verb. The verb behind it is bara. It means he created. So we can translate it this way: In the beginning, God he created the heavens and the earth. We know that God here is singular, singular, even though the word is plural. And uh, it the verb in the Hebrews would understand that God is not to be understood in plurality like the gods of Egypt. The opening line of the Bible creates a room for Trinitarian theology. Uh, uh, understanding of a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. He's one God in three persons. The next line is also expands our understanding of who this Trinitarian God or who this Elohim God could be. We are introduced to the Ruha of Elohim, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was doing this work of hovering and searching over the darkness. In the New Testament, we call him the Holy Spirit. And where, where does Genesis 2 fit in with this creation narrative? Somewhere in the first three days. The first, uh, in creation narrative, the, the first three days are to make the uninhabitable earth productive, and the last three days are concerned with filling this uninhabitable wor world with life. And in verse 2, I love it. This is one of my favorite words in all of Hebrew. It's, two, it's a phrase. It's tohu wabohu. Isn't that fun to say? Tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. And it means that the earth was formless and void, but it's a phrase. Like if, if Brandon said he was green earlier, what does that mean? He's new. That would be hard to translate. You would just translate he's new. You wouldn't translate that he was green at it, right? Well, the idea here is that that comes with this, this phrase, tohu vavahu, is that the, the, the formless and void, while it's accurate, the phrase 
would, would, would bring to mind chaos, abyss, and emptiness. The waters for the Jews are something that's scary. And God brought something livable. He was searching with his spirit, right? He brought something livable out of something that was too dark, too wet, and too dry. We see God bring order out of chaos. This is the picture of the Spirit searching in the Old Testament, and that's what he's doing in the New Testament. He's searching in the darkness. I love this picture, and this is the last thought. God, unprompted by us, created, didn't he? We didn't say, hey, God, please create us. Unprompted, God creates. Unprompted by us, God made a plan to save us. If your life feels full of chaos and full of darkness and out of control, submit to him and he will bring order out of your chaos. And as you read um, verse 2, God's life-giving work, it seems very, very unlikely, doesn't it? But it's also the picture of what he does in Jesus. It was unlikely that God would save us. It's unlikely that God would create a world and then step out of his perfect heaven into this fallen world that he created to, to pursue a people who had rejected him. It was unlikely, but he did. It's unlikely that he would become a man and dwell among us. It's unlikely that he would die on a cross. It was unlikely that he would then raise again, but he did in order to purchase our salvation. God is so loving and caring. Humanity did not ask to be created, but out of his goodness, he created us and he made us. God is so, so good and loving and caring. Humanity wasn't begging for God to save them, to save us, but out of his goodness, he saves us. If you die in your trespasses and sin, you will be cast out into an eternal abyss, into a hell. But if you trust in the redemption of the Son, you will be saved forevermore. The gospel of Genesis is that there is a God who creates us, a God who loves us, and a God who chose a covenant people to pursue for his possession that he would redeem by his blood through this son that he's promised, Jesus Christ. If you will, bow your heads with me.